Well, good morning. Welcome to Potomac Hills Presbyterian Church. My name is Frank Wong. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to see uh, some new faces and some old faces as well, uh, old friends that I've come back to visit. It's great to have you. We've got a fellowship lunch again uh, down the hall in the cafeteria after the service. We'd love for all of you to be there, uh, regardless if you can contribute or not. Um, if you're new or not, we would love to see you there. If you are new, please don't worry. We'd love to treat you to lunch, um, so please do come. There's plenty of food. If you are new, we are about two months into a year-long series on the life of Christ, just sort of walking with Jesus uh, through his life. And so if you would turn with me uh, to Luke chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 14 to 30. This is the word of the Lord. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all, through, uh, through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as this was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all who spoke and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at, Com at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And in but in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, to the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, as we come uh, to this story, Lord, we can't help but see ourselves in this uh, story of rejection of Jesus, that we so often choose sin over you. And Lord, as we examine your word, we ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we would no longer be blinded by our sin, but that we would see it clearly. And Lord, would we also see clearly the wonder of your gospel, the wonder of your grace, the wonder of your son who goes to the cross for us. And so Lord, this morning we ask to see Jesus we ask to see your gospel at work in our hearts that we might be transformed by its power, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, 
I want to start with a hypothetical situation that never, and I mean never, will happen. Uh, so let's say I become famous <laughs> in like 20 years after I've left uh, Potomac Hills. Some, I've somehow written this amazing book in my late 50s that becomes a bestseller. Again, hypothetical will never happen. One, because I'm like the slowest writer known to man. But anyways, the church I'm hypothetically leading, which the idea of me being senior pastor is also crazy to me. Uh, but let's just sort of say this church I'm hypothetically leading has exploded into a 4,000-person megachurch. I'm the next Tim Keller. <laughs> yes, laughter is appropriate. <laughs> Again, not going to happen. Clearly an absurd scenario for so many reasons. And then... Uh, in my fame, I come back to Potomac Hills to preach one Sunday. And this puts all of you in a very interesting position. Most of you will want to simply attend for the spectacle of it. Frank's famous now. I want to hear him speak. But in many ways, it will be hard for you to forget some of the boneheaded moments in my ministry here. Internally, you might be seesawing from, wow, he's really grown up now, to, hey, you remember that time when he couldn't couldn't spell bed properly at Mojnik. Very sad. I do know how to spell bed. I have learned, okay? But you might know intellectually that I've grown since the last time you've seen me, but relationally and emotionally, I'll still be that goofy youth pastor who's just a little crazy. So unfortunately, your outdated understanding of who I am or who I will be can lead to some strange and sometimes strained dynamics between us. You see, we also see this dynamic not just in hypotheticals, but when our covenant children come back from uh, college. They've grown by leaps and bounds, matured when we weren't looking, and are no longer the teens that uh, they were when we sent them off. And that's exactly the context that we find Jesus and the Nazarenes in here in Luke chapter 4. Look with me at verses 14 and 15. Jesus has begun his public ministry on the heels of his baptism and return from the wilderness and temptation. He's done great things, and all of Galilee is buzzing because of his rising star. And then he came home in verse 16. And naturally, he was asked to speak at the weekly worship service at the synagogue, and their service would have been roughly about the same as ours here um, at Potomac Hills. There would have been singing and responsive readings. There would have been readings of scripture, both from the Torah and from the prophets. A sermon would follow, and the service would close with a benediction. And so even back then, they're doing the same things that we're doing now. Jesus would have been the guest preacher of honor, and he had the scroll of the prophets turned to Isaiah chapter 61, which we uh, used as our call to worship this morning which is the quote in verses 18 and 19. Now, when Jesus got up to read, everyone was attentive. They wanted to know what he would pick to teach on. And for Jesus to choose this passage would have been exciting. Let's listen again at verses 18 through 21. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him and, began to, and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled 
in your hearing. These are gracious words and promises of God. These are words of messianic deliverance, words the Jews have been waiting for, for fulfillment of, for several hundred years. Jesus is making a bold claim here in the early days of his public ministry. Jesus is proclaiming that the promises of God would find their fulfillment in him and his message. And the message of these words hit directly at the greatest desires of the Nazarene hearts. To be free, not of sin, but of the Romans, and restored to the glory of the days of David and Solomon. Liberty and good news. The year of the Lord's favor. You can almost hear the expected call to arms and rebellion in these words, echoing the the long line of rebel leaders over the intertestamental period. But you don't actually hear that. Because Jesus cut off reading mid-verse. The last line ought to read, to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor and the vengeance of our God. And as I read this passage... I can't help but wonder how long it took the congregation to understand Jesus' reading and teaching. We understand that he means what he means because we know the rest of the story. But for them, did it immediately register that Jesus had left out the bit that they really wanted to hear? Did it register that the way that Jesus talks about the recipients of the good news of God is through weakness? After all, the people that receive the grace and promise Promises of God in Isaiah 61 are described in four ways. The poor, the captives, the blind, and the oppressed. And let's look at those quickly so that we know what we're talking about. The poor. When Isaiah talks about the poor, it's not just financial poverty in view, but also spiritual and moral poverty. It's the same word that Jesus Jesus uses in the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. These are people that understand their situation. They're not thinking too highly of themselves, but understand their desperate spiritual issues. What about the captives? The word captives usually talks about prisoners of war, but it also has spiritual bondage in view too. In other places in his gospel, Luke uses this word to describe bondage to sin and being held captive to something that isn't good. Blind. When it comes to the blind, this refers to the fact that sin keeps us unable to see God properly. It's elsewhere described as a veil that obscures and hides what, hides what is true to us. Sinfulness blinds us to the fact that we are sinful and also blinds us to what is righteous as well. We don't, need, we don't just need God to save us. We need him to open our eyes so that we can see that we need saving in the first place. And what about the oppressed? And then the oppressed are all those who are squashed flat by life's circumstances. These are people who understand their weaknesses and their powerlessness. When Jesus reads this passage from Isaiah, the people of Nazareth Nazareth might have had expectations of Jesus raising up a mighty army to overthrow the Romans through the power of God, a la Joshua. They understood the way of glory and power, and influence, and worldliness. And yet, Jesus doesn't give them what they expect. Not only does he leave out vengeance, which they yearn for, but he calls them poor, weak, blind, and powerless, not really a force 
to overthrow the government with. Which brings us to the false acceptance in verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is, this, is not this Joseph's son? The people who had been listening so intently react just as you might expect. Wow, what great words from Jesus. That sounded so good. And yet at the same time, familiarity breeds contempt. Wait a second. Isn't this Jesus? The poor carpenter's son? He's sort of moved up in the world a little bit. Can you hear the, the undermining of Jesus' message already? The discounting of his words already? Oh, we know who this Jesus is. He's got some good words, but I need to see with my own eyes some proof that he's different from what I know him to be. Do you hear the subtle skepticism and the struggle to re reconcile the image of kid and teenage and young adult Jesus in their mind with the spirit-filled, anointed, and ordained Messiah that stands and sits before them today. And this doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's hard to miss the context from the past couple weeks sermons. At Jesus' baptism, we saw him identify in humility with a sinful people. He has come to be among us, with us, and for us. And yet, when Jesus goes home, they don't identify with him. He's not embraced and followed by those he's closest to. Remember, these are family members, neighbors, childhood friends, people he knew well and who knew him well. And yet they don't identify with Jesus like the people I described in Isaiah 61. They don't see themselves as poor, captives, blind, and oppressed. It's more like, come on now, Jesus. We're strong people. You know us. We know how to work. We see how the world works. We understand what it'll take to gain our liberty from the Romans. Let's go. You know how this works. Let's go. And yet they have no idea just how bad their situation is. They have no idea that what holds them captive is a force stronger than the Roman Empire, but their own sin. And why? Why don't they see that? Because the blindness that sin causes in Isaiah 61 the same blindness that we read of in Isaiah 61, it is very real. And unfortunately, this is us. You know, when I read a passage and I look for a character to identify with, it's usually a good rule of thumb to find the worst person in the text, and that's probably me. We are just like the Nazarenes. We don't see ourselves as the poor, captive, blind, and oppressed. Sure, we've grown up in the church and would affirm left up, down, left, and right, that we're sinners, and big ones at that. But as we live our lives, we don't live like people who are poor in spirit, who are captive and know it, who are blind and know it, and who are oppressed and know it. We don't want a savior who raises, up, raises us up from the dead. We want a hand up, a dust off, and a hug of blessing. We want obedience to the scriptures on our own terms toward our own goals, on our own timelines. We want sanctification that feels good and makes us quote-unquote better instead of a sanctification that brings out a broken and contrite heart that leads to repentance. For us who have been in the church a long time, familiarity can breed contempt. But only this time, it's not contempt of just, you know, a person that you know. 
It's contempt or doubt or just plain old unbelief in the power of the gospel. Yeah, yeah, Jesus this. Yeah, yeah, Jesus that. Oh, I need to turn to Jesus. But then what do we do? We go off and walk on our own strength. How many of us live our lives with a visceral sense of desperation? How many of us live with a visceral sense of our desperate need for salvation? When you get up in the morning, you're probably not thinking about your sin or need. If you're anything like me, you're thinking about getting breakfast, getting dressed, getting the kids clothed and fed and out the door with the minimum of whining and complaining. You're thinking about that project at work or at school that you need to get done today. And when you get home, what to make for dinner? Then it's getting teeth brushed and pajamas on and kids to bed, or just vegging out because you're just exhausted from the day and need to decompress. Then it's to bed, to sleep, so that you can do it all over again the next day. And then we look up, and it's Sunday already. Time to put you know, my Jesus hat back on and go to church, go through the motions. The Nazarenes weren't looking to reorder their lives around Jesus. They were looking to tack him on, to fit him in somewhere in their lives, just like us. And even if we were to check the boxes of reading our Bibles daily or meditating on his word regularly, we still often shy away from the hard work of repentance. We don't like being confronted with our sin. Definitely don't like to do the work to try and change. It's much easier to simply confess our sins, to feel good that we've acknowledged the problems, and then to throw up our hands as if we weren't called to cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit to sanctify us. Yes, only God can change us, but we're called to cooperate with that sanctification, to pursue righteousness, to put to death sin, to give Satan no foothold in us. How many of us do that with gusto, with humility, with grace, with diligence? How many of us embrace these aspects of Jesus' lordship over our lives as if, as if we were being liberated from captivity and oppression? Friends, it's all or nothing. We're either totally dependent upon the grace of God or we're not. The Nazarenes just wanted a part of Jesus, not the whole package. And that's a false acceptance. And at its core, this false acceptance, this functional atheism dressed up in Christian clothes, this nominal Christianity, misses who Jesus really is. And thus, this rejection at Nazareth is really just an extension, really, of the the temptation that we saw last week. For Jesus to prove who he is. Jesus calls it out in verse 23. And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum do here in your hometown as well. And of course, this request isn't about a lack of evidence as to who Jesus is. They've seen who he is with their own eyes. He would have been perfectly gracious, perfectly kind, and beyond helpful while he was with them growing up. For 30 years, he was with them. And if that wasn't enough, the works at Capernaum should have themselves been sufficient. No, this is not a lack of evidence. This is a lack of faith coupled with an abundance of self-sufficient pride. They don't see him as the savior that they need. And that reality is driven home in verses 24 to 27. And he said to them, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. 
But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, to the land of Sidon, to a woman who, who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When Jesus brought up the widow at Zarephath and Naaman the Syrian, he picked two examples of faith in the, in the face of what we can see. The widow at Zarephath in 1 Kings 17 was facing starvation. Remember when Elijah came to her, she was about to make one last loaf of bread so that she and her son could eat and then die. Elijah had the audacity to ask her to make something for him first before she made her last meal. And he only gave her a promise that the Lord would provide supernaturally for her. From a worldly perspective, it would have been crazy to do what Elijah asked. She didn't have anything, barely anything. And to give out of her nothing to him would have been crazy. And yet she did so out of faith. Naaman, in 2 Kings chapter 5, was the same way. He was a leper. He came to Judah from Syria expecting to meet an important healer. Instead, he didn't even get an audience with the prophet Elisha. Rather, he gets a messenger from Elisha to tell him to go wash in the Jordan seven times. Now, that's utterly ridiculous, right? The water in the Jordan River isn't magical in any way, shape, or form. It's not even the cleanest water out there. And so Naaman went away in a huff about how little consideration was being given to so great a man as he. But it wasn't until his servant pointed out that Naaman would have gone to great lengths to do whatever the great prophet would have asked him, and yet at so simple a directive, he refuses. And so he had to walk in faith, not seeing how in the world it would work out. And he did. Not a great faith, certainly a flawed one, but yet faith in the Lord nonetheless. And so he was healed. Friends, my faith, faith in the Lord is key for the widow and for Naaman. Faith, as Hebrews 11 tells us, is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Faith says no to the wisdom of the world in favor of the wisdom of God. The widow and Naaman had faith in the Lord and the Nazarenes did not. And their reaction in verses 28 to 30 clearly bore out that they were filled with rage and attacked Jesus. So how they, they basically said, how dare you, Jesus, say that filthy Gentiles had a more righteous faith than us, the covenantal people of God. Do you see the pride spilling forth? Do you see how far they're willing to go to protect their idols of pride and comfort and self? And at this point, I hope all of you are profoundly uncomfortable. I know I am. I hope this hits you as this hits me. The depths of my sin and my unbelief are deep indeed. But thankfully, though this is the end of the passage, it is not the end of the story. We've now talked about the Nazarene unbelief and idolatry. We've talked about how we're pretty much just like them. But what we haven't noticed is what Jesus does about it. Where's the gospel in this? Where's the love of Christ going to sinners in this passage? It's pretty easy to miss. But we see it in that Jesus was not content to leave sinners without going after them. 
After all, this story could have ended right there in verse 22. Jesus could have simply received their words of affirmation. What great, what great words, Jesus, and just left it at that. He could absolutely have left them in their sin, in their unbelief, in their pride. They would have never known that they were being judged by being left in their sin. Jesus didn't have to point anything out to them. He didn't owe them anything. He didn't have to prove anything to them. But he wasn't willing to do that. He was going to expose their sin and give them the opportunity to repent. They simply didn't take that chance. But what's instructive is that the Lord pursued them. The Lord spoke to them and revealed their sin. The Lord, who is righteous and mighty, puts into practice the baptism that we read about two weeks ago. Jesus didn't come to enact vengeance, but to proclaim good news. He came to identify with sinners, to be with us in the midst of our sin, and to save us. In many ways, this first glimpse into the public ministry of Jesus shows what the rest of the Bible and what Isaiah 61 does. That even the people who ought to know Jesus the best, who had him and lived with him and saw him face to face for 30 years, are still without hope, save in his grace. They're Isaiah 61 in practice. People who are captive to sin, people who are blind to their sin, and people who are being crushed beneath the weight of their sin. These Nazarenes, these prideful and sinful Nazarenes, are exactly who Jesus comes to proclaim good news to. Sinners like them and like us are the recipients of Jesus' grace. When Jesus goes to the cross to save those whom he loves, undoubtedly some of those people whom he goes to the cross for are likely in this crowd in Nazareth as well. This is the scandal and foolishness of the cross, that God would save for himself a people that don't want him. That's wondrous. That's supernatural. That isn't how the world works. And yet it is our only hope. We who have seen Jesus, who know him and love him, need to come again and again to the foot of the cross as people who are poor in spirit, captives to our sin, blind to that sin, and oppressed by our sin. It is there that something far beyond us happens. We are made new as we are united with Christ. We have been crucified with Christ and we no longer live, but it is Christ who lives within us. We are a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old has passed away. That is wondrous. And we come again and again to that great truth every week. Why? Because familiarity breeds contempt. And we can't let the gospel become stale to us. We can't have that contempt. Why? Because it is too great. It is too wondrous. It is too important and precious. The power of Christ and the grace of Christ come together to sanctify us, to transform us while we yet sin. That is how we change, through humility and weakness and a pursuit of the Lord. And even today, we can see that the Lord is not content to leave us alone. But he draws near to us through the table that is set before you. We are going to come to it in just a few minutes. He bids you to come in your poverty, in your captivity, in your blindness, and in your oppression to the cross and to him, that you would repent and be changed. 
As we wrap up this morning, we were reminded that the gospel first shows us our sin, our rejection of Jesus, and then moves us to the foot of the cross. There we find our Savior that we might die to ourselves and be raised in newness of life, united to the one who loves us far more than we could possibly imagine. And so let's go. Let's go to him in prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we confess that we are a people much like the Nazarenes. Even, even after we have become yours, we are often too much like the Nazarenes, concerned with ourselves, consumed by our own sins, our own idolatries, not focused upon you. And yet, Lord, you promise that good news comes to people such as us, such as these Nazarenes, that the good news comes to sinners in the midst of their sin. And so, Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes to our great need, that you would show us the depth of our sin, but also that you would bring us invariably and without fail to your Son, to the cross through which our hope comes, that we might be raised with him and united with him, that we might know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you love us and that you loved us even when we didn't love you. As the Lord, would those great truths be seared upon our souls, upon our hearts, that we might pursue you, that we might turn from our sin through the power of your Holy Spirit and be transformed more and more into your likeness. Sanctify us, we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.